All right. I'm here again with Jeremy Hammond. He's been on the show a few times. He's an independent journalist and has been writing a lot about the response to COVID-19. He's been writing about vaccines for a long time, about vaccine safety, also writes about the Middle East. But we are going to talk today about what those of us who are critical of the responses to COVID-19, some of the things that we're getting wrong. So you're, you've got some pet peeves about some of the things that keep coming from our quarters. Um, first of all, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming back. Um, what, what's, what are some of the things that, that kind of our side is getting wrong? Well, yeah, I mean, I can go into answer that question, but before I do, I just want to kind of preface it with, with kind of my point, the, the main point of why I'm kind of critical of some of the statements and claims that are coming from the health freedom movement um, because you know when we get things wrong we're so scrutinized for any little you know pat point like we have to be I mean they hold us to a higher standard let's yeah, just absolutely. face it they hold us to a higher standard than they hold themselves I mean so the, the the greatest purveyors of misinformation are the government and the mainstream media it doesn't help though it doesn't help our cause when you know when we are spreading when misinformation is truly being spread because of course they're always attacking that and, and, and uh, we don't want to legitimize their accusations that we're spreading this information. Yeah. Um, so we should, we really need to um, work hard at not doing that. And so, I mean, there, there's a number of examples. I mean, going back to the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, the claim that, uh, and, and here's another problem is certain claims kind of opens the, enables the, the media to kind of say, oh, this is a conspiracy theory or, oh, this is misinformation. And then, and then they throw out the baby with the bathwater. So there might be certain truths. So mm -hmm. a good example is, is the, um, you know, the, the claim that there is no COVID-19 that is caused by 5G technology. That, that was early on. That mm -hmm. kind of died out. But um, very early on, that was one of the claims. And, and of course, the media just dismissed this as, you know, nonsense and conspiracy theory. Um, the problem with that is, is, you know, we don't know. I mean, for all we know, EMF radiation could be a, 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 a factor, mm -hmm. you know, in people's health. Um, obviously, it's not the cause of COVID-19. But so this claim that this is the cause of no COVID-19 um, really, you know, allowed the media to kind of deflect attention away from legitimate concerns about EMF radiation and 5G technology. So that's mm -hmm. one example, um, you know, claims that the, the whole pandemic claim that, you know, that, that the, the pandemic was planned when you claim that it's you know that bill gates was behind the whole thing and and that you know they, they engineered the virus in a lab and and that they released it on purpose um to to put forth you know to to advance their political agendas and financial agendas i mean that goes so far beyond the evidence you know that we you know it's not helpful to make those claims Right. You know, and, Although there is there is evidence. I mean, I, I agree with you, but there is evidence that, you know, the whole event 201 thing, you look at that and they were certainly ready for something to come along and and precisely. help with their agenda. And, and that's that's the approach we need to take is like is certainly we can see it that, that there are certain individuals, including Bill Gates, who are using the pandemic to advance political agendas. There's no question about that. I mean, that you know, that we have that yeah. <laughs> right in front of us, it's observable. <laughs> but when you go beyond that and say, well, that they created the virus specifically for that purpose and they yeah. deliberately released it for that purpose. I mean, we can't show that. And so when you're making claims that you can't prove, it's not helpful. Yeah. Um, well, and, and, and the other thing, the problem with that is that it, it enables, again, it enables the media to say, oh, well, this claim of lab origin is a conspiracy theory. 
And, and in this case, when people are making that claim, it is a conspiracy theory. And, and we need to avoid conspiracy theories at all costs, you know, I mean, because all that does is it, it enables the media, it gives them this means, this mechanism by which to dismiss the whole lab origin hypothesis. Of course, the idea that this was created in the laboratory in Wuhan um, is not a conspiracy theory. That, that is a legitimate scientific hypothesis, and we don't know. And there is, uh, obviously, the circumstantial evidence is there in terms of um, that hypothesis that it, it, it came from the lab. There's also direct evidence. You're just looking at, you know, like scientific evidence. And you look at a good example is when SARS entered the human population, um, First of all, they were able to identify the intermediary host species, so that the civets, you know, with the bats being the, the host population for, for the virus. Um, but then when it entered the human population, it, would, it became, you know, started infecting human hosts, it rapidly mutated. So as, as it was, you know, progressed through the human uh, population, um, there were mutations constantly happening. It evolved very rapidly to adapt. So you could see it, like you could watch it adapt to its new host. This didn't happen with SARS-CoV-2. It was really strange. So it entered the human population. It, you know, it started infecting the human host already well adapted for humans. Mm -hmm. This is really peculiar. Um, so, yeah. you know, so we have evidence like this that's, uh, that really does point toward a lab origin, you know, that they were doing gain of function research. Uh, and so the hypothesis that, you know, presumably it would have been an accident. I mean, I don't think they um, can't. Obviously, you know, going again to the whole conspiracy theory, and I don't think they would have done it intentionally. We can't, maybe we can't rule that out, but, but you know, the, the best hypothesis is that, yeah, they were doing this root gain of function research and, uh, and they created this thing in a lab and it got out. Um, but that's, that is a, that is a scientific hypothesis. That is not a conspiracy mm -hmm. theory. And so when we, we go beyond the evidence and we start talking, getting into the realm of conspiracy theory, all that that's doing is, is legitimizing. The media's dismissal of the whole thing, and so right. it's really harmful. And helping to obfuscate exactly what you're just what you're talking about, helping to Precisely. obfuscate the actual yeah. evidence that is there. Precisely, because then they don't even have to address address right. the evidence. They can just say, "Oh, that's that's that Bill Gates conspiracy theory." We can right. ignore that. Yeah. Right. What about what about this claim that um, that there is no virus, or that the virus has not been isolated? Yeah, it, that, that is the, the argument that's being made. So they say that the virus has not been isolated and therefore we there's no evidence of its, of its existence. Um, yeah, this is this is probably my biggest pet peeve because <laughs> uh, it's just this claim is such a nuisance and I, I've been, you know, I, I see it among my own reader community, you know, that um, that many of my readers are legitimately confused by this and, and a lot of them like have been convinced of this, that the virus, ha virus hasn't been isolated. Um, but it's so superficial. I mean, when you just scratch the surface of this, it's just nonsense. So um, essentially what, what some of these people who are promoting this claim are doing is they're just kind of redefining what isolation means hmm. and sort of saying, well, we have this dictionary definition. We have this layman's understanding of what isolation means. And that's not what scientists do. You know, it, it, like as though like we somehow had the technology to just extract the virus from, from a, a patient and, suspended in a vacuum where it's completely separated from everything else around it. And of course, mm -hmm. that's, it, you know, we, maybe someday they'll have that technology, but, you know, we're, we're limited by, you know, scientists are limited by the technology that we have 
currently. Um, and so, and, and they also say that, you know, to properly isolate a virus, you have to do this and that. And they say, well, proper isolation is not using cell culture, which, okay, you're just redefining what isolation means. Because if you look up the, the gold standard, it's literally called the gold standard in, you know, in the literature of like how to isolate a virus, the gold standard is cell culture. <laughs> mm. So they use cell cultures. And of course, I mean, it, makes, it makes sense because viruses need host cells to replicate. Right. This is one of the things they do. They look for replication. They, 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 they use cell cultures to see, you know, is, is there something in here that's replicating and that's causing cytopathic effects? Um, and so that's evidence of a virus. And, and they go further than that. You know, I mean, you, you can use electron microscopy and, and, and see the, the virions. Right. And then you can, you can do whole genome sequencing. And, and actually, and you can do, you know, what's called um, like shotgun de novo sequencing, where uh, sometimes, and this is one of the things that they claim, they'll say, well, they, you know, whole, whole genome sequencing works for things you already have the whole genome sequence for, because there's something called a reference sample. Uh, mm -hmm. so sometimes they do genome sequencing with a reference sample. And so they're just comparing what they find with, you know, another published uh, genome. But, you know, obviously somebody had, had to, to come in, initially. Somewhere. Precisely. And so that's called de novo sequencing. And so what they do mm -hmm. is... Um, I mean, they, they can they can just find the genetic materials and have to piece it together. I mean, and this is, it involves complex computer um, computations where they. But they, it's they there. Can, I mean, they do yeah. the cell culture. They identify this this thing that they name the SARS-CoV-2 virus, pull it out, and then can do a genetic sequence based on what they've pulled out. Is it that simple? Yeah, essentially. I mean, it really is that simple. I mean, yeah, they do. So they might take a, to go through the process. They might take the sample from the patient. They might uh, centrifuge it, and then they take the substrate and they do cell culture, uh, and they can do controls where they have you know two two cell cultures and one with the you know where they insert the the patient sample, the substrate from the patient sample, uh, and they and they watch and say, well, this one this one has the cytopathic effect, so there's something there's something there, mm -hmm. uh, and then they can uh, you know they can use an electron microscope. They don't have to, but they can see it. They can see the, the coronavirus, and it's called a coronavirus because it looks like you know we all know it's got right, the spikes, right. the spike proteins. Um, so it's the crown. Uh, so they see it, they know what it looks like. And then, and then with the whole genome sequence, they gene, sequence the entire genome or, uh, of the, of the virus. And, and this, this is done every day. I mean, hundreds, if not thousands of times daily by scientists all over the world. I mean, if you go to, I mean, there's an international database where scientists submit publish the whole genome sequences. Sometimes they do partial genome sequence, but you're just looking at whole, you know, whole genome sequences that have been published. <clears throat> Last I looked, which was probably a couple months ago now, I mean, there was there were over thirty thousand. Wow! You know, published whole genome sequences. I mean, it's, this is how they're able to track you know, the mutation yeah. and the evolution of the virus as it passages through the human population. I mean, the idea that, I mean, really, that the, the logical corollary of this argument that it's never been isolated is that all these tens of thousands of scientists all over the world are in on some grand conspiracy to perpetrate a hoax against us. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's so ludicrous. I mean, it, it, it's just absurd. And it goes beyond any kind of reason. Where did it, where did it come from? Where, where did, where do you think that idea started? Well, there's been a number of people within uh, the movement who, who have been propagating this claim. Um, and I, I've tended not to name names, but Andrew Kaufman is probably one of the leading propagators of this claim. I think he's probably the most popular. Uh, and I had never heard of him before, before he started making that claim and then kind of his claims started going viral. Um, and, 
John Rappaport has been another person who I've seen who in the, in the past I've really admired and respected you know, mm-hmm. a lot of his writings. Um, but he's been really pushing that claim too, um, you know, falsely claiming, for example, that the CDC uh, admitted that that uh, the virus had never been isolated. Well, now, is do you, do you think they're just confusing? Because when the CDC first started working on its own um, PCR test, it was working from a model, right? It didn't. It didn't. It hadn't isolated. It didn't have the isolated um, virus there. Doesn't mean that that didn't exist. But when they first started working on the tests, they didn't. They didn't work from an isolated virus. Do you think that's what? No, that, that's precisely. They they actually found a document. Um, so it's a CDC document on the FDA's website uh, describing its PCR tests that it developed. And and so at the time that that document was initially published, which was like early February, and I think it was probably written in late January, uh, maybe even mid-January. And uh, so when it was published, um, I think February 4th, <clears throat> it contained a statement saying that we do not have an isolate of the virus. And so they were they developed their PCR test based on the published, published whole genome sequence from scientists in China mm-hmm. that published it. And so, um, and it, so that was precisely what happened. And then as they updated the document over time, I mean, they, they would update it for various reasons. Um, but of course the statement remained in there that, you know, because at, at, at the time they were developing a test, they didn't have the virus isolate. So eventually, you know, a short time later, the, the CDC did isolate the virus from a patient in Washington. And they described that as a published paper on it in the literature. You can go read it. Mm-hmm. Just like there's all kinds of published papers on, you know, from scientists all over the world, isolating the virus and doing whole genome sequencing. Um, and so they did, and they didn't update that statement in the document to say, well, at the time we did the, the test, we didn't have a virus isolate. It just read the way it always had from the beginning. Mm-hmm. There was no reason to update that. I mean, it's, it, it was con- context to it. And so uh, what Rappaport and others have done is just kind of take that statement out of context and say, oh, look, the CDC is, is admitting that the virus was never isolated, which is completely untrue. Uh, and in fact, after I had I'd written an article about that at the time, actually, a little while back. Uh, and, and since I wrote that article, uh, the CDC, the, that document was updated, mm. actually. And I think okay. it's as a result of this misinformation. I think this. I think they realized that, oh, no, this claim is being made. We just, just quickly update the document. And they did. So they said, so now it says that, you know, at the time that the test was being developed, that the CDC did not have an isolate of the virus. And of course, they do now. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned um, looking for cytopathic effects with the virus. Do you know um, to what extent that was done when, when either in China or here or anyplace else, when they first identified the virus, what what kind of tests were done to see what kind of effect it was having on tissue or on on living people? Mm, um, that's a good question. I, I, I'm not Sure, there's there is the published paper where they describe you know the you know, first finding the virus and isolating it. Um, it's been a really long time since I looked at that specific paper, so uh, I, I I'm assuming that I could be wrong in this because again it's been a while since I looked at that specific paper, but I, I'm pretty sure that they would have done cell culture. I mean, um, I mean that 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 is how isolation is done. So they would have done cell culture and then uh, observed the cytopathic effects, and then they did the whole genome sequencing. So, so looking at the effects on the cells in that culture. Right. Yeah. To see that, yeah, there's, there's a virus in there. Yeah. Yeah. So one theory or one idea that I really have heard about, but I haven't 
dug into, and I don't know if you have, but this idea that that viruses, um, viruses generally, not just SARS-CoV-2, um, are not the causative agent of <clears throat> these these pathologies, but are actually sort of the result of them, the, that they're exosomes. Have you looked into, do you have anything to say about that? Yes, scientists recognize a distinction between exosomes and viruses. They're not the same thing. I mean, they have, okay. certainly they have similarities and it's, it's very interesting, some of the similarities and they both kind of serve as these kind of messengers. You know, the, the exosomes kind of deliver messages around their body. Like, and uh, Dr. Zach Bush is really good on this. He's talked about how viruses themselves are essentially you know, like the RNA viruses are, are these messengers. They deliver uh, messages to our own system. So they essentially, you know, when we have these infections and we and and they actually integrate into our own DNA. I mean, ten percent of our own uh, right. DNA is viral in origin, and and um, and so essentially we depend that just like we depend on bacteria. You know, mm-hmm. the microbiome, mm-hmm. and there's more there's more bacteria cell bacterial cells in our body than we have human cells, and. Uh, and, and he's so brilliant in describing how you know, essentially they just upgrade our software, and, and it's necessary because we we gain survival benefits. Don't use that word. <laughs> <laughs> what the upgrade of software? The software, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess into the whole Bill Gates thing, but yeah. Um, but I, I thought it was a brilliant kind of analogy the way Dr. Zach Bush described it. Um, mm-hmm. He's described it in, in interviews and things. Well, it raises the question. I mean, to me, it gets to the whole the whole paradigm, the difference in paradigms that there seems on on the one end of the spectrum, you have this view that, you know, we need to eradicate disease. We need to eradicate whether it's measles or SARS-CoV-2 or the common cold or whatever it is. It's, it, it seems to be that there, that the end goal is really eradication. And when we look at things like what Dr. Dr. Zach Bush is saying, it's a little more complicated than that. So is it, am I being too extreme in saying that the end goal for, you know, the, the kind of allopathic view is that they, they really want to eradicate all, all disease. Am I being too extreme? Yeah, they talk, they talk about waging war on, on these, you know, on viruses or bacteria, you know, um, <clears throat> excuse me. And, and I mean, they use that language. I mean, and, yeah. and the whole idea, I mean, Back with they talk about vaccines and they want to exterminate these things from the planet, um, and, and so there's just it's the paradigm is wrong. It's just it's a wrong paradigm. We need to understand that you know, we are part of nature. We are part of the environment. We need to live in harmony and balance with our environment, with nature, and not look at nature as like the enemy that we have to exterminate and, and conquer mm-hmm. um, because we're not we're not smarter. I mean, we're not more intelligent than the design than, than my cat than we were created. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, th- this goes to the, the whole idea of germ theory. And so mm-hmm. and there's a lot of, a lot of my readers are confused about this too. And it, it, they, they kind of take this view as either germ theory or it's terrain theory. And it's, this is kind of like the whole nature versus nerd. I mean, I remember in college, they were still talking about nature versus nerd. Like it has you know? to be one or the other. Right. And I was I thought I, at the time, I remember thinking about that at the time, like in an anthropology class I was taking at the time, I was thinking, well, what's this false dichotomy? It's, not, right. it's obviously both. I mean, it just intuitively, I, I, I right. just knew that back then, like it's obviously both. And so I thought the whole argument was kind of pointless and silly. Um, and it, it, it's the same way with the germ versus terrain theory. It's both. Um, people seem legitimately confused about that. And I think part of the reason is because we talk about the cause of a disease. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's really important to understand that. Okay. So 
you know, whether talking about influenza or, you know, COVID-19, um, you know, these respiratory virus diseases, it's not that SARS-CoV-2 is the cause of COVID-19 because a lot of people are infected and they never develop the disease. They never develop yeah. symptoms. They don't get the syndrome. Um, same with influenza. A lot of people can get the flu or it can become infected with, infected with the flu, but they never develop any symptoms. They never have any disease. Um, and so the way I like to say it is that, you know, that SARS-CoV-2 infection is a necessary but insufficient factor in the development and the pathogenesis of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, there, yes, there are other factors at play. You know, the, the, the host is, is important. The terrain is important. Yeah, it's, and it's, it's an essential factor. It's interesting because because it's so much in the limelight and because the comorbidities are so much in the limelight, you know, it, it's it's all over the mainstream media even. And I think it's bringing to the forefront this awareness of terrain theory or of the whether people call it that or not of the idea that it's not, you know, we're not just victims of these viruses and bacteria running around attacking us, that the terrain that we keep has a lot to do with that. And and I think it's interesting. I don't remember a time when that story was out in the, in the mainstream press, the way it has been now. Yeah. And also, you know, our environment has a lot to do with the, the terrain and, you know, I mean, Really, this should be a wake-up call. You know, the, mm-hmm. the whole COVID nineteen mm-hmm. pandemic and the mortality that it has caused. I mean, if you look at the risk factors for severe disease and for 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 death, um, you know, these comorbidities are a huge factor, and people are people people are unhealthy. There's yeah. metabolic uh, disorder. You know, um, people are just metabolically unhealthy, and this is a big factor. People who get severely ill or die from it. Um, and a lot of this is just environmental. It's our choice, life choices and just the society we live in today. I mean, we're so far removed from our nature and our environment. And, yeah, and a lot of these illnesses are really a product of the lifestyle that we live. And so really, it needs to be a wake up call, I think, for, for just human society and civilization to say, look, we, we need to find more sustainable way of, of living you know, in kind of harmony with, with our environment. Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, you see, <laughs> you hear advertisements, you listen into Pandora or whatever, and you, the advertisement comes on of these products that now it's, they just want to like spray everything down. Oh, you touched something and now there's bacteria yeah. on it and you need something to spray it down. It's like, well, so wait a minute. Like, this is literally an advertisement I hear all the time on Pandora. And it's like, wait a minute. So I touched something and now I got bacteria on the surface. When I want, I need to spray down the surface. Yeah. Where did the bacteria come minute. from? But it's all over me. So I'm supposed to spray myself <laughs> down with all these toxic chemicals. I mean, it's so absurd and ludicrous. And yet this is, it's like somebody actually wrote that advertisement. I mean, it's, it's And it's people absurd. are living that way too. I mean, that's, that's why, you know, when I think of, of what seems to be the end point with this worldview it sounds absurd to me. You know, it, it sounds literally as absurd as what you're talking about. You know, okay, yeah, let's take a bath in disinfectant every morning and maybe drink it for <laughs> right. breakfast and, you know, get rid of it. It's like, it's, it's, my cat's about to walk on the keyboard here. Um, it's, it's, it's getting to the point where that's, I think we're kind of approaching that. And it's like, well, at what point are people going to realize there's something wrong with this worldview, with this whole, that that's, that's, you know, that's going to kill you. <laughs> this, uh, this is relates to the, the whole hygiene hypothesis, you know, where, I mean, pathogenic challenge is necessary for our, our own health. I mean, there, there are 
benefits we get from, from being infected and exposed to viruses and bacteria. Uh, in you know, so many studies looking at infections during childhood and the, the health benefits that that confers to children. And, and there's the whole hypothesis that we're seeing, you know, all these increasing rates of allergies and asthma and all these chronic illnesses. Part of that is due to, you know, children not being exposed, you know, in society today. And, you know, if you look, think about the past, you know, ch children living on farms have mm -hmm. lower rates of, of asthma and things because they just, they're in that environment, they're exposed to more things. And we live in kind of this uh, almost it's too, we're too sanitary, you know, we're yeah. like, we're everything, yeah. we're not exposed to stuff. And then we think we can live in this bubble and, you know, the viruses and bacteria are this other, this enemy, this thing we have to like protect ourselves from. But at the same time, it's like, no, we, we need that. We need that exposure so that we can survive yeah. exposures. Well, and that's and how we train our immune system to function. Yeah. And a good example of that is, is, you know, the studies that have been coming out over the past year showing that people with prior exposure to other coronaviruses have T-cell memory against, have T-cell protection against this new one. So it's yep. not just that you're, you know, by being exposed to all this stuff, you're only developing protection against the existing stuff out there. You're strengthening your system against new things that might come in the future. And that's what we've seen with SARS-CoV-2. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a good example of, you know, they use the term non-specific effects in the literature to describe unintended consequences of, of vaccination, like long-term things like increased mm -hmm. uh, mortality from other causes, things like this. Um, but, you know, I, I use the term also to describe, you know, just non-specific effects of infection. So when you're infected with measles during your childhood, you're, you're at lower risk. Uh, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's, it's been shown, studies have shown that you're at lower risk of cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. You know, measles infection during childhood, it, it confers a protective effect against cardiovascular disease later in life. Uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, different types of, of uh, uh, tumors. Um, they, they, scientists have observed measles infection cause regression of cancers in children. I mean, there's there's all kinds. Yeah, so it's not just you get infected with measles and you gain you know, lifelong immunity to measles. There's so many more benefits yeah. of that challenge to our immune systems uh and that you know that scientists you know can't predict these things the only way to know is to, to right. you know to study these you know the right to do these comparisons you know what, yeah. what, what, are, what are the effects and when you talk you talk about um you know use the word sustainability which i feel like has been hijacked by by people who or by an agenda that's about anything but sustainability. Right. To, to me, the the least sustainable system is the one that's that makes decisions from the top down. That yes. so when we're talking about well, what's the proper balance between germ theory and terrain theory, or between you know interacting with these pathogens and protecting ourselves from them. I hope it's speak. I mean, to me, it, it's just this whole episode has made it crystal clear that there's not one right answer and you can't just impose you know we've clearly clearly the 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 answer that's been imposed on us by the centralized authorities is the wrong answer but even an answer that i thought you know that i might think is more reasonable it's still not the right answer because everybody's different every culture is different every geography is different every individual is different and so to me, this is this is a huge lesson in the dangers of centralization. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's 
since your planning doesn't work any more, any better in health than it does in the economy. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, and that's the thing. I mean, it's, it's kind of it gets into public vaccine policy and the idea that vaccination, mass vaccination is a one size fits all the, the solution to disease prevention. Um, but, you know, no bureaucrat in state capitals or Washington, D.C. has the knowledge of the individual necessary to be able to do a meaningful risk benefit analysis for that individual. Every, every individual is at a different risk of the disease. The vaccines are, are intended to protect against. Every individual is at a different risk of uh, the vac- you know, it being harmed by the vaccine. And every vaccine is different. You know, they say vaccines are safe and effective, but every vaccine has a different profile of safety and effectiveness. I mean, these are not meaningful statements. Yeah. You know, vaccines are safe and effective. Uh, and so the, the, the idea of anything being a one-size-fits-all solution like this is just so ludicrous and unscientific. It really is. Yeah. You talk about anti-science. Yeah. That's right. anti-science. Yeah, yeah central planning doesn't work. I mean, it, no, they did, nobody up top has that knowledge. It, it's, it's like the market. I mean, we, we all, you know, it's, it, just like bureaucrats don't know better than the market with this pricing system, how to efficiently direct scarce resources toward productive ends as defined by the will of consumers, meaning by all of us. I mean, there's no pure form of the democratic principle than a free market, right? And so it's like, we all are making these decisions collaboratively together. I mean, we, we all need to be involved in this, this decision-making process. So there's no one top-down solution. It, it has to be bottom up. Um, yeah. Center planning just it can't work. It, it's logical impossibility. Yeah, but for some reason, and even among people who get that in the economic realm, for some reason, there seems to be this tremendous exception when it comes to, you know, those magical words, public health. And it's almost like, from what I see, it's almost like people kind of turn off their capacity for reason. Like there's, there's, it, it's really like, like a mental block almost like, or, I mean, I liken it more to a religion. It's, it's like, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. And, you know, you and I aren't either. I'm not, I'm not a scientist. I'm not, I don't have any special knowledge about this. And, and I know you didn't come into this with any special training or knowledge, but I think for a lot of people, the brain shuts down when it comes to medical science in particular. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, they're the experts. I'm going to listen to them. And that's, that's, that's just a deadly attitude. Yes, we've we've been indoctrinated to think that way. I mean, you know, <laughs> we're supposed to trust doctors and trust the CDC and trust the FDA to look after us and take care of us. We're supposed to trust the medical establishment. But the thing is, is you know, the medical establishment is not trustworthy. The CDC is not trustworthy and has proven itself untrustworthy over and over and over again. Uh, it's this idea that we're just supposed to have. Yeah, it's like we're they're up on this pedestal and we're just supposed to worship these people. Um, and we're not even supposed to think for ourselves. In fact, there was, there's a hilarious article right? in the New York times. Recently. Yes, Did you yes. see that? Oh, I love it. Yes, Critical yes. thinking is. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I mean, they the headline, I think literally said that don't, don't, we, we don't have the tools to think for us or whatever, whatever it was. It was ridiculous. I wish I could remember the exact wording because I couldn't yeah, could, no, make fun of it. I would have to just repeat what the exact wording was. But, yeah, I mean, but like, so appropriate for the New York Times. And, and, I mean, the, the author literally argued that people should just go to Wikipedia to learn <sighs> the truth. Like if you see something, you know, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is saying something. Well, just go to Wikipedia and look up Robert F. Kennedy Jr. in Wikipedia. And you can evaluate him as a source using Wikipedia, and then you don't need to go any further than that. 
Right. You don't need you don't need to forget about primary source materials. So don't look at the studies Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is citing to support right. what he's saying. Right, right. Just go to Wikipedia and see, oh, so he's a conspiracy theorist, and, and that's it. That's all you need to know. And forget it. And that's kind of that's kind of the the level that public debate has come to um in, in large part. I find that there's a constant um appeal to authority. And also, you know, attacking not the message, not the sources of the message, but the messenger. So Robert F. Kennedy writes an article citing, you know, peer-reviewed publications in defense of his position. Sweep all that aside. Robert F. Kennedy, you know, is described by Wikipedia as such. And so it's all about attacking the messenger. Um, and, And yet people buy into it. it it's, I, I don't even want to, don't even want to go down that, that, that trail because it's just, it's so depressing, but I think this has really revealed the, the bankruptcy of public discourse in, in America anyway. I don't know if it's any better anywhere else. Yeah. I mean, that article is what he was describing as the problem. It's actually the solution. And what, what is the problem? What is the problem is the solution that he offers is just, just trust us, just listen to us listen to the mainstream media, listen right. to, you know, the Facebook Anthony, fact Anthony Fauci, listen to the Facebook fact checkers. Listen, just trust us to do your thinking for you and don't do your thinking on your own. That's precisely the problem. That's why we have these problems because people don't do their own thinking. People do trust the mainstream media. People do trust the government to tell them what to think. Uh, and, and so, so it's like he had it completely backwards. Yeah. You know, people did think for themselves and did do their own research and uh, then the people would come to completely different conclusions uh, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't believe the, the nonsense that they're taught to believe. Why do you think so many people don't think for themselves? Um, I don't, I, I think they're not taught to, I mean, it, it is something, it is a skill. I mean, it's something that, you know, I mean, I, I know just from gaining, acquiring skills in journalism over the years and skills in research and, and critical thinking. But if you don't practice it, you're not going to do it. It's like playing music. If you want to learn how to play guitar or piano or something, you, you've got to practice it. you got to do it. And so if we're not actually practicing those skills and we're not doing the critical thinking, um, then you're just never going to acquire that type of skill. And it, this is something, you know, I, I make this point a lot that, you know, I have certain skills as a journalist that I've acquired from doing journalism. Uh, but, you know, the skills that I've acquired, it's, it's something that, not just journalists, most journalists don't have in the mainstream right. media. They don't have the skills, first of all, but, but it's not right. something that just journalists need. I, you know, we all ha- need to have these types of skills as news consumers these days. Yeah. Like we all need to be able to look at, at, a, at a source of information and be able to assess its credibility, assess any biases it might have. Uh, and, and then, you know, go to different sources and get, gain insights from all different kinds of, from every available perspective. Uh, and, and being willing to check our own confirmation biases and open our minds to the possibility that, you know, our pre-existing beliefs might be wrong and say, well, you know, there's this whole other perspective that I never had heard of before. And maybe that's, maybe there's a lot of truth to that. Or, you know, it's, so I think people, you know, and people tend to get stuck in their own beliefs mm-hmm. very dogmatically, again, like almost like a religion where, they develop opinions about something and then they just, they just cling to that. And and it's, it really is hard to kind of recognize your own confirmation biases and overcome it, but you know, you can do it. It can be done. I mean, there's skills involved in doing this. And, um, and I think that is really important that, that we as news consumers need to develop these types of critical thinking skills. Uh, and it's not something, you know, that it's, it's not something we're taught in school and people in school are, 
you know, in the public school, they're just indoctrinated into the state yeah. religion. Well, and you succeed in that environment by um, by doing the opposite of that. You succeed by giving the answers the teacher wants, and right, you know, yeah. not being. Yeah, it's like a, it, it's like on the immigration test. You know, if somebody wants to become a naturalized citizen, and they have to answer, you know, well, about what was the uh, uh, Lincoln's uh, Emancipation Proclamation? Oh, it freed the slaves. <sighs> You have and you have to give one of those, you know, or a similar answer to that. Right. You have to give that answer, even though it's completely false. You can go to the U.S. National Archives government right. website. It talks about the, the Emancipation Proclamation. It says it did not free any slaves. I mean, because it, it didn't free any slaves. Yeah. But that's the proper answer that people are taught to give right. on on the test. Um, so yeah, and the, in that the, schooling system, yeah. you learn to give the proper answer, yeah. not to dig in and find out what's actually what's actually true. Right. Exactly. Don't dig. Don't do your research. Just trust us. This Just is this, is, this is the right answer. This is what you, if, if you want an A on the test, this is what you say. And this is the type of learning that's done. Um, mm. And yeah, children are not taught to question government authority. Yeah. They're not taught to question the history that they learn in the, in the textbooks. Um, and this and is where so, that gets us. This is where yeah. we are because of that. This is where we are because of the lack of critical thinking. Yeah. Well, on that note, um, <laughs> and I'll, I need to let you go. Um, anything else, anything else that you wanted to mention or flag our attention to? I just invite people to subscribe to my newsletter by going to jeremyrhammond.com on any page of my website, you'll, you'll see sign up forms. Uh, so I deliver a lot of good uh, information uh, lately about COVID-19 pandemic and the uh, lockdown responses uh, in the last several years focused intently on the vaccine issue. Uh, ceased publishing anything on foreign policy and not due to lack of passion, but just no time. I mean, it, it's, yeah. this is, this is a, a, a threat closer to home. And so I've just had to be, once I became a father, my priorities have shifted. So um, yes, yeah, just go to jeremyrhammond.com and get on my newsletter and stay up to date with my work. Okay, and I'll I'll link to that. Um, I can I can vouch for that. His content is always interesting, um, always always relevant uh, to what's going on, and and definitely well worth reading. So I, I'll put a link there in the in the show notes. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks. Always a pleasure. Yeah, we'll catch up again soon. All right. Good. Bye. Bye.